Chapter 19. CTU. I was excited to be returning to counter-terrorism. It had been eight years since I'd left Special Branch in London, and in that time I'd done a lot of different things. But in my heart of hearts, I felt that counter-terrorism was still my policing home, because it was where I'd spent so many years and done so much. However, I quickly realised that a lot had changed in those years, and the entire national counter-terrorism community had been put on steroids after the catastrophic attacks in London in 2005. The entire network had been given a massive cash injection over the previous five years. And rather than things being done on a relatively local level, a national network of counter-terrorism units, CTUs, and counter-terrorism intelligence units had been created. These units worked alongside MI5, and genuine joint working was now the name of the game. My new workplace was a large, modern and rather swanky new facility in Birmingham. It was a world away from my previous experience of CT, when we were working in rather low-tech, tired and dilapidated buildings in London. Someone had obviously been splashing the cash. My new job was to be the manager of the counter-terrorism police operations rooms. This is where the live operations were conducted from, and my staff would manage and oversee the deployment of all of the covert resources on the ground in real time. I'm not going to talk about what these resources were or what they did because of my ongoing obligations under the Official Secrets Act. There have been a lot of books and TV programmes created that in my view have disclosed far too much about this world and the only people that really helps are criminals and terrorists. All I will say is that in a live terrorism investigation there's a wide range of sensitive human and technical capabilities deployed to gather evidence and intelligence to progress investigative priorities. These activities then drive the overall strategy set by the senior investigating officer. As well as swanky new accommodation housing many hundreds of staff, the technology had come on leaps and bounds in the years that I'd been away from this world, and nowhere was more tech-focused than the department I was responsible for. It had more gleaming boxes of technological tricks than I'd ever seen before, with humming server rooms and a room with walls full of screens dominated by one enormous screen about 15 feet wide by 6 feet high. The staff worked in pairs, one to listen to the surveillance commentary on the radio and to pass instructions to the team, and the other to carry out fast-time inquiries on people, places, vehicles and anything else that needed to be researched. I had a team of about 15 staff who were a mixture of police officers and civilians which included two sergeants. This was quite a small core team. However, we bring in trained staff from other parts of the UK during busy periods, and the team could swell to somewhere between 25 and 30 operators. I had a lot to get my head around, not least the technology and the new ways of working. I'd been on a CT surveillance team before, so that element was very familiar to me. However, the kit that the teams had access to had evolved 
and the ability to send and receive images and video had really improved. When we'd conducted CT operations back in the 1990s, it was all straightforward and very low tech. Someone would sit in the ops room in Scotland Yard wearing a headset and listen to the surveillance team out on the ground. And they would use a big paper map book, sticky labels and a finger. They would write a summary of what was going on, where the suspects were going, who they met and what they did. This was all recorded longhand on carbon forms. One copy was ripped off and handed to a DS controller who would raise actions from the narrative. These actions would be allocated to intelligence officers like me to go away and do some digging and find out what we thought was going on. So, for example, if the surveillance team were watching a subject who drove to a block of garages, opened one of the garages and disappeared inside out of sight. The action would be something like research ownership and current occupancy of all garages at the rear of flats in Acacia Avenue, Ilford, Essex, with a focus on the third garage from the left, visited by subject X at 13.45 hours on the 12th of July 1999. I would then find out who owned or rented that garage and the garage is adjacent. How long have they been using it? How was it being paid for? Can we obtain spare keys? Everything that a subject under surveillance did would be researched, and from this research, a picture would start to emerge as to what was going on. And then we would try to make sure that we were one step ahead of the conspiracy. The way that we did this in the 1990s was very simple but it was incredibly effective, and we caught and convicted a lot of terrorists that way. So my initial thoughts when I saw all these new gadgets and gizmos was, have they overcomplicated all this? Whilst technology can be great, it also means that there are a lot more things to go wrong. In the end, however, I had no cause to worry, because the teams were drilled to revert to old school pen and paper in the event of technology failure. I soon settled into life in the CTU, but I quickly realised that operationally it was going to be either famine or feast, and most of the time it felt tranquil compared to the frenetic pace of life back in the PPU. I also realised that I was now a tiny cog in the massive machine that was the National CT Network. It felt like after 2005, the CT world, for very understandable reasons, had had buckets of cash lavished on it and hundreds of people allocated to huge teams. However, for quite a lot of the time, these people didn't really have enough to do, which didn't seem quite right when frontline policing was becoming so strapped for resources and where many people, mainly children, were starting to die as a result of gun and knife crime. I worked with lots of great people, and they were all very good at their jobs. Relationships with MI5 were generally excellent too, which was a marked change since my days in Special Branch, when relations with them were strained. They had evidently recruited a lot more normal people in recent years, who just wanted to do the right thing, and didn't have a massive superiority complex towards stupid old plod. 
We all worked together very seamlessly and happily most of the time. Differences were resolved amicably and professionally and we rubbed along together well. The biggest difference between dealing with the IRA and dealing with Islamist extremists was that ultimately members of the IRA didn't want to die and they generally didn't set out to indiscriminately murder as many people as possible. When I joined the CTU in 2010, the people that we were dealing with had no such scruples. They positively welcomed death, saw Westerners as evil and decadent, and they wanted to kill as many people as possible. Men, women and children were all fair game. This meant that terrorist conspiracies would now need to be interrupted at a much earlier stage. In the old days, we would let IRA active service units run, gathering more and more evidence as we went along, right up to the point when they were preparing to launch the attack. And then we would scoop them up. Dealing with this lot was a whole different ballgame. They could go very quickly from being radicalised to launching a deadly attack. This then created a difficult balancing act of judging when we had enough evidence to support a successful conviction at court, but not allowing the terrorists to progress their plot to the point when the public was put at risk. In a totalitarian state, they would have been arrested immediately and sent off to some awful internment camp. If we were in the United States, we would lure naive half-wits into conspiracies using sting operations to incriminate them and send them to prison. Many of the terrorist cases that US authorities prosecute would never be permitted in the UK because of the rules of agent provocateur. In other words, they entice people to commit an illegal act. If these people were left alone, many of them wouldn't have the ability or the wherewithal to mount a terrorist attack. Thankfully, this isn't the British way, and we played by the rules of the UK courts. One of the most important responsibilities of our team was to help train lots of staff who could be brought into work in the operations room during a crisis that required a significant uplift in resources. A terrorist investigation tends to move very quickly. It can start small, but once the full extent and seriousness of what we're dealing with becomes obvious, the operation can grow rapidly and the resources must grow too to manage multiple surveillance teams in multiple locations. The job of my team was to manage the covert assets on the ground. We also had to learn how to work and communicate with teams from other organisations including MI5, military special forces, police firearms teams and all sorts of other resources depending on what was going on. The staff from these organisations also needed to be familiar with our operating protocols. So we hosted lots of different people in the ops room almost daily. Senior officers also needed to be trained and we held regular CT commander courses organised at a national level. These were incredibly realistic and lasted a week with several days devoted to live exercises involving the full range of covert resources out on the ground. Following actors who played the part of the terrorists. It was all made as realistic as possible, 
and every course was mentally exhausting, with multiple subjects being followed by multiple teams simultaneously. My job was to run the ops room and provide regular briefings to the senior officer in charge, who was normally an assistant chief constable. These courses became essential after the tragic shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes on the 22nd of July 2005. During a counter-terrorism surveillance operation, de Menezes was mistaken for a suicide bomber and shot dead by firearms officers in Stockwell Tube Station in London. The courses were designed to ensure that senior officers running high-tempo terrorist operations understood exactly what resources they had available to them what those resources were capable of doing, and the frequently ambiguous behaviour of live terrorists under surveillance. This meant that if they needed to authorise police firearms officers to kill terrorists before they killed members of the public, they'd be able to justify that based on signed evidence and intelligence, which could also be used later in court if required. These courses would often end in executive action being taken, which involved police firearms teams working with military special forces. The scenarios would test the ability of police to hand over operational control to the military, who would take over and resolve the situation if deemed operationally necessary. However, this was never a given, and the CT commander would be kept guessing to simulate as closely as possible the often slightly chaotic behaviour of real terrorists. We also used to help run regular large-scale multi-agency exercises designed to simulate Mumbai-style mass casualty attacks on soft civilian targets. These exercises became incredibly important after an Islamist attack on multiple targets in Mumbai in 2008, culminating in a bloody siege at the Taj Hotel over 170 people were killed in these attacks. Similar tactics were used in the attack on the Westgate shopping centre in 2013 in Nairobi, Kenya, by Al-Shabaab extremists, killing 70 and wounding 175 people. And in Paris, in the deadly attack on the Bataclan Theatre in 2015, in which 89 people were killed. These large-scale exercises were incredibly realistic and would involve the full range of police and military resources and dozens of actors playing terrorists and hostages. They would usually culminate in a full-scale assault by special forces to release the hostages and neutralise the terrorists. Today, these critical incidents are just as likely to be resolved by highly trained and heavily armed Police Counterterrorism Specialist Firearms Officers, CTSFOs, who are trained in many of the offensive tactics and weaponry used by military special forces, such as the SAS. These teams were created for a couple of reasons. Firstly, there was a realisation that an attack of this nature was likely to happen very suddenly, requiring a rapid response. CTSFO teams can be scrambled in minutes, whereas special forces require a little more time to make their way from their standby locations. Secondly, 
Traditional police firearms tactics tended to focus on containing the threat from a gunman and then moving to a negotiating position. Traditionally, an armed suspect would only be directly engaged if they posed an immediate threat to the officer or member of the public. However, recent mass casualty attacks demonstrated that these tactics had to change and become much more offensive so that officers could move towards a threat and neutralise them more quickly. Many of these tactics are now also taught to the crews of police armed response vehicles because they're likely to be the first on scene in such incidents. The London Bridge attack in 2017 showed how effective this training can be as an armed response vehicle crew quickly neutralised all three terrorists within seconds of arriving. During my time in the CTU, I was fortunate to be closely involved in some very successful Al-Qaeda operations that resulted in murderous attacks being prevented and lives undoubtedly saved. For example, Operation Guava was an investigation into a terrorist conspiracy involving nine men who planned to bomb targets in London and cause mass casualties. Operation Pittsford was an investigation into 11 men who also planned mass casualty attacks. These operations were fantastically successful, but they're also intense and we all spent very long hours at work and rarely had a day off for many weeks. After the Operation Pittsford arrests, I was asked to manage the detention of the 11 conspirators at a secure CT detention facility. I'd never done this before, so it was a bit nerve-wracking. I had to become very knowledgeable about counter-terrorism detention legislation very quickly, because the detainees were represented by lawyers who had been defending the interests of terrorists for many, many years. These lawyers had also represented IRA terrorists throughout their long campaign, so they knew their stuff and would quickly spot anything that they knew might help get their clients off at court. When I actually met them, I thought that the detainees were a rather sorry-looking bunch. However, I was comparing them in my mind to the IRA, who were on a whole different playing field in terms of their operational competence. Having said that, these people were clearly incredibly dangerous maniacs who were determined to try and kill and maim as many innocent British civilians as possible. Prison was definitely the best place for them. At the end of seven days' detention, the charges were authorised by the Crown Prosecution Service and we took them down to the Magistrates' Court in London in an armed convoy that didn't stop from the moment it left the detention facility to the moment it pulled into the secure compound of the court. They were all quickly remanded in custody and put back into the armoured vans. We then took them across London, again escorted by the Met Special Escort Group, who are amazing at what they do, on a blue light run all the way to Belmarsh Prison, where they'd be kept on remand. I must say that I've done a lot of impressive blue light runs in the police over the years, but this was definitely the best ever. It was fast and smooth, 
as the Special Escort Group blocked every junction right across London to allow the convoy to pass through unimpeded. It was poetry in motion. When we arrived at Belmarsh, the giant metal gates slid open to allow our convoy into the reception yard. HMP Belmarsh is a Category A prison, which means that it's one of several facilities around the UK that are designed to hold the most dangerous prisoners, usually a mixture of terrorists, armed robbers, gang members with a history of extreme violence, and murderers. It's an unbelievably grim place, and almost impossible to either get into or escape from. We got them out of the van, and they were ushered through several more sets of steel doors into the internal reception desk, which looked very similar to a police custody centre. The key difference was that this place was staffed by prison officers, who took this all in their stride, as they'd seen it a hundred times before. By now, our prisoners were looking thoroughly gloomy as they stood waiting in their handcuffs, standard police-issue tracksuits and plimsolls. Working on such big jobs was great, and I was lucky to be involved in a number of them, but I wasn't enjoying working on the CTU. I was starting to feel stifled and really fed up. I realised that it had probably been naive of me to think that everything would be the same as it had been when I left Special Branch, but it was completely different. What had previously felt like a small, close-knit family where everyone was trusted, respected and treated as equals, regardless of rank, had changed into a much larger, more impersonal organisation where I didn't feel at home at all. There was also a bit of a toxic culture at that time, where the long periods of inactivity between big operations meant that many senior managers defaulted to micromanaging and fault-finding. It was certainly the unhappiest inspector team that I'd ever experienced. Many of us used to secretly meet for coffee and plan our escapes out of the unit, like we were in a Second World War prisoner of war camp. I recently had a conversation with an ex-colleague I used to work with in those days, who got so fed up that he resigned from the police and moved into another industry after 28 years' service, despite the fact that he owed only two years from retirement. That says a lot to me, and not in a good way. God moves in mysterious ways sometimes, and just as I was thinking I needed a new job, after three years in the CTU, I received an email from a friend who pointed out that the College of Policing was looking for a detective inspector to run a national project driving the new Child Sexual Exploitation Action Plan. This job had my name all over it, so without further ado, I submitted my application and went down to London for an interview with Peter Davis, who was a Deputy Chief Constable and the head of SEOP. To my absolute delight, I was successful. <laughs>